0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello to all our listeners. Welcome back for episode nine of Common Descent. Yes, episode
0: nine. That's it. That's all I have. To say. I don't have any, yeah. any, no catchphrase.
1: Yeah, No, Just there's nothing. Nine. It is episode nine. That is it. Straightforward, nice uh, and solid. It. We are we are one away from double digits. So we so. are
0: also one away from not no longer being able to make Star Wars jokes. Yeah. I made. I think I made a couple. <laughs> I made one for episode five. I don't know if you caught it when I made it. I don't. I'm. I don't remember. You didn't acknowledge it the way that I would have expected. I don't know. I
1: I I have to remember what it was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I started off episode five by saying episode five is of course the best episode.
1: Oh right. I assumed that that was having to do with uh, the the subject matter. Ah. I did not catch it was a Star Wars. I I apologize to you and all our listeners. Two months late on that one. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> It's oh, oh, oh. <laughs> still good, still good, still good I, now. Have, a, I have a chortle Age man. well. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, so welcome everyone uh, to today's episode. We'll, yes. of course, get to our, our news soon, but to announce today's episode's subject, we're going to be going over a particularly famous event in Earth's history. Uh, I, I I definitely assume... When it comes to paleontologists, if you ask one of the most, like one of it, potentially the most famous event, yeah. depending on what people study, because this is one of the biggest moments in the evolutionary history of life in general. We're going to be talking today about the Cambrian explosion, uh, kind of going over what it is, what potentially caused it, and mm-hmm. the thought processes behind it as it was being discovered. There's a whole lot to this episode. I know we say this every single time and we say that we say this every single time that will never end. We'll, we 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 will say that every single time. Absolutely. Redundancy is a good uh practice in both science and safety. So Consistency. Yes, we're going to make sure in case it was not clear this episode has a whole lot it could be split into a whole bunch of episodes and i'm sure we'll come back to certain parts of it so this will be a bit of a whirlwind as usual if we go over something and you're like hey you didn't mention that one really cool cambrian fossil that they that did this thing or that was discovered let us know and Can we'll put it on the list episode. this one we both had to do a lot of research for this one cuz this is getting into old paleontology all invertebrate stuff which neither of us uh, have our backgrounds in. So this one has a lot <laughs> yeah. of stuff, but it was a lot of fun. Bit of a, we actually bit learned of a, a refresher. Lot. Yes, absolutely. And mm. learned a whole bunch about it and learned that I I want to learn more. So now I have a whole bunch of uh, Cambrian Explosion papers that I've saved thanks to thanks to this podcast that I will eventually be reading. That are completely different from all the other papers I have saved on my computer. I, don't, I didn't have anything else.
0: It's a whole other category.
1: Yeah, invertebrate <laughs> section. <laughs> all right. So before we jump into all that, as usual, it's time for the news. The news. Read all about it. <laughs> I like That's, it. Yeah, I don't. We're testing out catchphrases. Uh, <laughs> we'll have a different one every time. We'll have a
0: vote. We'll have a vote at some point. <laughs> vote for vote for the. How do we intro the news?
1: Anyway, I see. I got. I, I want to go ahead and start with one of mine because this is an exciting one, and we'll go ahead and get it out of the way because most of you have probably heard about at least one of these. Uh, these yeah, have been go for exploding it. over the Facebook and the internet. Uh, and Cambrian are, exploding. Yes, this is far after the Cambrian explosion, um, <laughs> the 2017 explosion of <laughs> Ankylosaurs and their discoveries. So there have been a couple of really cool Ankylosaur discoveries, but specifically the, the one I'm going to focus a bit on is Zool, the Destroyer of Shins. Yes. Who was discovered, <laughs> uh, he, he was originally discovered in 2014, but has recently been described and uh, news articles about it have been abounding. So this is an Ankylosaur, and Ankylosaurs were the heavily armored dinosaurs, many of them having club like, mace like tails mm-hmm. with a very stiff, you know, tailbones going down it that they used as a weapon for defense. This one is a particularly well preserved dinosaur of that group and it was discovered in Montana while they were looking for tyrannosaurs hmm. and came across this. It's now at the Royal Ontario Museum in toronto victoria arbor and davis david evans are the two who worked on and described this and named it and it's exciting because this is uh, the first ankylosaur ever to have both the head and the tail
0: oh interesting
1: which i didn't know we had not had a single individual with you know we had not had an individual anglosaur that had both up till now interesting They always seem to only have one or the other. The thought process behind that being that they, being such bulky animals, fall apart and can be drifted more easily as they decompose. (laughs) This dinosaur, whose scientific name is Zulcurivastator, which means the destroyer of shins. That's not a catchy phrase that you've been seeing on the news articles. That is actually (laughs) what the scientific name means. Because
0: Victoria Arbor
1: and David Evans are awesome. Because they're, they're the coolest. So yep. for everyone out there, Zool being the monster dog creature from Ghostbusters that possesses Sigourney Weaver. Yes. The the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper. Are you uh, the gatekeeper? <laughs> <laughs> I am
0: the key master. Are you the gatekeeper? There is
1: no Dana only, Zool. <laughs> well done. I'm not sure how that's going to sound on the podcast. Well, it it's, <laughs> it's just going to come back as feedback. Uh, what a lovely
0: singing voice you must have. <laughs> Ghostbuster quotes, rest of the episode.
1: Oh, it, absolutely. There is a video of Dan Aykroyd talking yes! about Zool. So that will be on the blog post uh, for everyone because the world is a wonderful place. And we're all lucky to live in <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs> so this was a really well-preserved Ankylosaur past having both his body. It was partially uh mummified so it was it has some skin remnants mm-hmm. preserved with the fossil very very well preserved of course giving us lots of information every time we have a excellently preserved animal we are excited yeah it's good stuff this is made all the more awesome by the fact that it is not the only type of, of this dinosaur that was discovered recently that was crazily preserved there was a notosaur which is side cousins to the Ankylosaurs, still armored, no club on the tail. Mm-hmm. Lots of spikes, lots of blade-like projections. Uh, these actually have two big spikes on the shoulders that yeah. it's thought that they used kind of like rhino, or not rhino, horns. To basically it would just like, sh- you know, hockey player sh- shoulder check whoever was trying to mess with it and stab them with these massive, uh, what do they say, 20-inch spikes that it had on its shoulder.
0: We actually have a few of these at the lab that I, I've been uh, going to at Adelphi with Pelta. So we got a couple of mostly completely preserved shoulder spikes. Oh, cool. And they are crazy long and have sharp edges, like thin, not just the point, but the edge is really thin, which is really, really cool. They're cool to see. It was
1: hardcore living with dinosaurs. Yeah. So this one was discovered... Actually, in an interesting way, it was discovered by Sean Funk <laughs> in Alberta six years ago, who is an employee of an energy company there that discovered it while excavating. And, and there was an interview with him. He talked about the fact that he was used to seeing, like, fossilized wood and stuff like that. And then while using his backhoe, the bucket hit something more solid, and it was a dinosaur. Cool. Not just any dinosaur. A really cool one. Now, this sort of stuff happens all the time for everyone out there. That's This is actually very similar to how the fossil site we worked at was discovered. Yep. And luckily, these people did what the people who discovered our site did, and they stopped and called someone.
0: Yeah. As opposed to just cutting the fossil in half and moving on.
1: And it ending up on a whole bunch of fireplace mantelpieces and... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because that's what I, that's what often happens when f- f- fossils get discovered at a construction site is they <laughs> just go home, uh, in someone's pocket. Yeah, this notosaur was petrified effectively. It was preserved from head all the way down to the hips, and even has the uh, front right, if I'm right, right forefoot. Hmm. The fact that that all that was preserved is pretty cool. You know. The reason this one is so amazing is it's actually preserved in 3D. Oh, yeah. It's like
0: there's almost no point in describing Yes, this. There'll you, be pictures. You, you just got to look at it. We'll it's a link.
1: amazing. And so the reason that this has everyone so excited isn't just because it looks cool, but basically every other time we find fossils of an animal, it is deformed somehow. Mm-hmm. This actually shows us exactly how everything was fitting together. And the most exciting thing to me, this goes back to when we were talking about discovering feather color, is it looks like how we've been drawing them. <laughs> yeah. It's well, confirmation. One of the really cool things about ankylosaurs is
0: that their backs are covered in osteoderms, which are mm-hmm. individual separate bones.
1: Which all the best animals have, just to put yes, that out the there. all the best
0: animals. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, the, some, except for the really best animals. A lot of close animals. <laughs> have a lot one. of backpedaling in there. I almost, it was very close. Um, like, ooh, close. One of the cool things about the ankylosaurs is because their osteoderms are not fused to the body in a lot of cases, so when they break apart for fossilization, the osteoderms just get scattered all over the place. Mm-hmm. So finding one with osteoderms in place is always really
1: exciting. Yeah, and so this was cool. These were both really big animals. The, the new notosaur that we're talking about, is it going to be a new species and genus, and they have not given... Those yet they're still in the process of describing and cool applying names so we don't know what those are called but these these were cool impressive animals and both really good really good representations yeah
0: and the links we put in the blog will have pictures uh, there's paleo art of Zool, and there is and he's adorable just incredible pictures of the notosaur
1: oh it's 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 it, like it takes you a second to process it because it looks. Like a statue.
0: I thought it was. A, I thought it was somebody sculpted it Absolutely. when I first saw the picture. I was like, "Oh, it's a, re- it's a reconstruction of a new dinosaur
1: they discovered." Absolutely, nope, that's the fossil. And they think the reason it fossilized so well is because of a, a rapid undersea burial. Eh, interesting. It's Got a it's a sea, which does happen. Low sea area that they're founded in, so they're thinking that it was quickly buried in the sea and basically just preserved in its death position. Cool. Yeah. All right.
0: Uh, we should mention
1: very briefly, that
0: yes, this was just for us. We were privy to a particularly uh, unique artistic reconstruction yep. of Zool. So there,
1: there's lots of paleo art of Zool. We ha- are, were given a preview to the best one.
0: <laughs> one of a kind <laughs> via Twitter from our friend who we mentioned last time, <laughs> our friend Darwin, uh, who drew us an awesome picture of Zool. Incidentally, actually, when, when they tweeted that at us, I tweeted it at the artist who did the official reconstruction of Zool, uh-huh. and she liked it too. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's Danielle <laughs> Dufault, I think, is, is her last name. It was good. Speaking of dinosaurs, More so dinosaurs. there was another discovery that came out recently. This is a baby dinosaur, um, and baby, I'm going to clarify that in just a second. It's a new species. A new genus, Bebe long sinensis, which Bebe long literally means baby dragon uh, pulled from Chinese. This is a specimen with a story. So this uh, back in the you know 80s, 90s, there was a whole lot of fossil smuggling going in, on in China. Um, I say that like it doesn't still happen today. It does. But back then was a time where the Chinese government was really trying to get a handle on this. But a lot of fossils snuck out of the country, mm-hmm. especially eggs. And one of the fossils that snuck out of the country was this partial nest with a bunch of eggs and a little skeleton. What was interesting about this was that these eggs, this is a particular kind of egg. So I think we mentioned a few episodes ago that footprints and tracks and stuff get their own genus and species names. Yeah, Because it's very hard to identify a track to a specific, you know, this is a T-Rex track. You don't know that pretty much any of the time.
1: They may have had flabby feet.
0: Yeah, so they get their own names, and so this was a giant egg, uh officially called Macroelongatolithus, but I won't say that again. It yeah, well done. Yeah, thank you. It was found in you know they're found in Asia, they're found in North America. They're forty centimeters long, or for Jeez. those of you in America, sixteen inches, so almost a ruler and a half. Yeah, these are huge eggs, but nobody knew what laid these eggs. But now we have a skeleton. So this skeleton made its way to the US, probably smuggled, ended up in the hands of uh, a company that collected sort of things like this and prepped it. And when they prepped it, this baby, this little baby skeleton came out and became super famous. And it was named Baby Louie. Yep. Named after the photographer that I, that, that took the pictures of it for the National Geographic feature that ran about it. Baby Louie was really cool. Uh, it became super famous, got a name, you know, went on display, eventually went to the Indianapolis Children's Museum and went on display there. It was prepped, but it was never really studied. You know, we kind of knew it was a, a theropod, a two-legged dinosaur, but no one really studied it because research was kind of hampered by the fact that it shouldn't be in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really belong here. And a lot of researchers on principle will refuse to work on fossils that aren't legally meant to be. You know, you, want, you don't want there to be legal issues wrapped up in your research.
1: Yeah, and they don't want to encourage it, you know, by, yeah. by taking it and studying it. That's essentially saying, well, you shouldn't have done this, but um, is it okay, cool. Yeah, I'm going to take it anyway.
0: So a couple of years ago, baby, uh, little baby Louie made his way back to China. So now he is back... It is back. I don't know what it is. It is back in the Henan province. Identifies. I I, I assume baby Louie's identity. (laughs) Back in the Henan province in China at the museum over there and was finally able to be studied and identified. And it has now been officially identified as a oviraptorosaur. So the oviraptorosaurs were these goofy looking dinosaurs, two-legged, you know, swan-like
1: necks, short faces with beaks. Yeah, kind of like a flamingo beak almost with the weird downturn.
0: Yeah, and a lot of them had weird crests on their heads. Mm-hmm. Darla Zelenitsky, one of the authors of this new paper, compared them to cassowaries. Yeah,
1: that's what I was about to say. Is it's like They were like a whole bunch of birds smushed together.
0: Yeah, they were They were pretty cool. But what's interesting is that based on the size of the eggs, they think it probably came from a giant species of oviraptorosaur, similar to gigantoraptor. Yeah. Gigantoraptor is like a three-ton, eight-meter-long. This is this is a giant, weird cassowary animal, the size of Allosaurus, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> from China. So Babylong is probably a a baby. Oh, and I should I should point out that when I say baby, the evidence indicates that this uh, this skeleton was probably forced out of the egg, that it never actually hatched properly. So this is actually a fetus. Yeah, this is a fetal skeleton. Ready to hatch, but it probably didn't actually hatch. So not only is it probably a giant new species, which is funny to me because it means someday if we hopefully find the adult, we will have a three-ton animal whose name is Baby Dragon. (laughs) 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 But the other thing that's cool is it identifies what type of dinosaur is laying these eggs. Mm -hmm. And these eggs are found, like I said, in North America, all across Asia. Even though we haven't found giant oviraptorosaurs in all those places, so it tells us that there were probably these giant oviraptorosaurs living in North America as well that we just haven't found fossils of yet. The other really cool implication is that the structure of the nest is similar to some other oviraptorosaurs, similar to some living birds, uh, where you have this sort of ring- these rings around a- an empty center. Which in modern birds and in the extinct Oviraptorosaur city potty from Asia is where they sit to brood, to, to cover their nests during incubation. So this article, which was published in Nature, came out with an artistic reconstruction of a giant Oviraptorosaur squatting down on its nest yeah. to cover up its eggs, which is awesome.
1: It's really cool, too, because this isn't the first time really interesting discoveries have been made via nests when it comes to oviraptors. The oh, name yes, oviraptor true. means egg thief, because when the was originally described, it was found seemingly burglarizing a dinosaur nest. Caught red-handed. Yeah, and it was a raptor. They assumed that it was guilty. That's theropod discrimination, right? that's what that is. <laughs> they finally CT scanned the eggs and saw that actually, what is was inside the eggs were little overrafters, yep and that this was not a thief but a protective mother, yeah, or, or father, or father, you know, a protective a parent brooding and guarding its nest, yeah, you know, potentially for something like a you know a sandstorm or whatever it was that buried them all in the act, because it had its arms down covering. And so these are animals that we keep getting to learn more about through eggs, which is just a, a a neat parallel. I think. Yeah, it's it's a fun it's a fun group. They're cool. They're cool animals. Weird looking. Very weird. Yeah, but cool. All right. So enough about dinosaurs. Who who really cares about those? Yeah.
0: No more dinosaurs. The whole rest of yeah. Easter.
1: No, I think we've had our fill. Dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, I think we can all agree they're they've had their day in the sun. The new hot thing, of course, is hominids. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm starting don't, to sound like Ethan. I don't think they're gonna catch on. I think this whole hominid thing is just a fad. <laughs>
0: Humans are just a phase.
1: <laughs> what about hominids? <laughs> Hyper intelligent cephalopods is where it is next. <laughs> so my next news article is about Homo naledi. and. This is a hominid that was discovered not too long ago, 2013, in South Africa, in the Rising Star Cave system, and is been basically re looked at because it, initially they had assumed its age was a bit older, and it has a smaller brain than us, so they assumed it was less intelligent. And. Mm-hmm. May have been walking around with our ancestor Homo erectus, or the predecessor Homo erectus, but on a closer examination, they discovered a couple of new things. So they did six different dating techniques and discovered that it's actually younger, which would place it 335,000 to 236,000, yeah. which would put it right at the same time as Homo sapiens.
0: Yeah, so this this was a another close relative mm-hmm. living
1: coexisting with us. So that's interesting in and of itself, but what the, the really interesting thing that they discovered in my fear is that they started to see evidence as they looked more closely at all the clues they were given that it was most likely more intelligent than we had given it credit for or assumed it to be, which happens with animals all the time. My go-to example always being alligators, whose brains Mm -hmm. as big as a thumb. (laughs) They can learn schedules and training and their names and all that good stuff. That's basically what happened here, is it had a smaller brain, so they assumed it was a little bit lower down on the intelligence scale.
0: They assumed that
1: it was also earlier. Yes. That it was
0: uh, an earlier Mm -hmm. uh, species that branched off before, you know, more modern, more big-brained, more intelligent species came around.
1: Led them to, you know, assume that it probably wasn't showing the more... uh, uh, complex hominid behaviors that we start to see if we do say so ourselves yes the first thing that clued them into this was that where the fossil was found was in a cave and it was within one cubic meter just or just a few cubic meters of sediment so just a small area uh you know so maybe 10 square feet is what we're talking about here ish they found 1500 fossil specimens belonging to 15 individuals that's a very high density in a small area which points to that they may have been using this cave as a burial site to deposit dead members of their tribe troop whatever you term you would use for mm-hmm. the, you know a hominid like this and doesn't show any signs of predation on the bones, so it's not likely that this was a den where they were being dragged to, and they didn't see any signs that it was washed in. So they were either going there to die or being brought there after death is what the what the clues point to at this point. And if that's the case, that's a higher activity that we don't typically see in the earlier and smaller-brained hominids. It should be pointed out that
0: that uh, is a point that the researchers of the, uh, with Home on the Lady had been pointing out since the first discovery. Oh, yes. They seem to be about the only people that think that that's true. <laughs> like, this there's a, a ton of other, that's, because, uh, and I think we, we, we said this uh, recently about something else, I think, that's a hard
1: sell. And, and it's one of those things yeah. where it's hard to interpret, as it always, it's hard to interpret behavior from a corpse. Yep. It's really hard for us to, you know, it's one of those things where when we describe a, you know, velociraptor being the famous one with their large toe hooks, there is still discussion as to what they we were using those for. Oh, we yeah. all have a mental image of what they're using them for because we've all any one civilized has seen Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we're all on the same page. So we all have a mental image, but we don't actually know that's how they were using it. Same yeah, thing. Not yet. It, that's even more complex when you don't have a biological structure to infer behavior from you know, yeah they didn't have grave digging hands they just seemed <laughs> to have a mass burial yeah the other thing that they pointed to with that though is that it is much farther back into the cave if they were making it their their way back there on purpose then they would be going into a perpetual dark environment which once again to them suggests that they would be potentially using fire to go back. Interesting. The cool thing that they point out is that evidence of fire from what was it 1.1 million years ago was found near that site, just half a mile away. Cool. But it was assumed it was from our ancestors. Yeah. So if what they're if the clues that they're finding from those other findings is true then this actually could have been from we have now a separate possible answer, really, is what this is saying. Yeah. There's also uh, tools that have been discovered in the area that had yet to have owners placed with them. The last little detail about this one is they found one extremely well-preserved skeleton and almost complete of, a, of an adult in the cave uh, in a different chamber from the mm-hmm. dense populated that is named Neo, yes. which I greatly enjoy.
0: <laughs> it's named now it's named Neo uh cuz I remember I was reading about this it's not Neo like new mhm um it's from a local word it's an
1: anagram for the
0: one because
1: <laughs> this was the one to take they down
0: actually the actually found it there was a whole bunch of bullets just yeah. laying right in front of in it in a in a line in a line it stopped straight down and there was an impression of a spoon yep but no actual spoon it it was baffling I don't remember what the what the word meant. Uh, but it was a uh, it's a it was a local word and it's in the, it'll yeah. be in the blog post. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me.
1: We'll we'll write it all down. Oops. Alright. That is that is all I have to say about hominins for real, forever. <laughs> forever. Uh, <laughs> uh the, what what's really cool about
0: that, I think, is that we've sort of had this assumption all of our assumptions about human evolution continue to be shaken. Mm-hmm. Where you know, at first it was kind of assumed early on, oh, well, Homo sapiens is super smart and awesome, and everybody else was kind of primitive. And now it's, you know, these days it's, all right, well, we weren't alone, and there were other, like the Neanderthals, which were also quite advanced, um, quite intelligent, and Homo erectus was already using tools and such. And this notion of, all right, well, so our ancestors developed high cognition, and we inherited it along with some of our sister species. But if Homo Naledi was also doing, you know, potential tool use Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe even some of these more complex behaviors, that's – there was a – potentially a diversity Mm -hmm. of fairly intelligent hominins, you know, human relatives, all living at the same time. And and one of the things that this makes really difficult is for a long, long time, we've always kind of been saying, oh, hey, we found tools, evidence of our lineage. Mm Mm-hmm. But maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there
1: were other species using these tools. It, it's it's interesting since we're, you know, when we study our own history, because you have the, the, to combat the assumption that we must be special and awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then to find out that we were standing among a lot of others like us, which makes it harder to place the clues. It also, at least for me and I know for others, raises the question as to, why we won out? Yeah, yeah. It brings up that question of okay, if we weren't super crazy special or not obviously so, where did all of they go? Because <laughs> something yeah. did happened. Did we? Did we get lucky? Exactly. And so it's it's an interesting thing. That's a question for another episode. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Uh... <laughs> Which we will definitely do someday. Oh, absolutely. Final piece. Last news. The last news. The final news is a newly published report of snake fossils. From the Gray Fossil Site. Now, there are two yeah, reasons. Heard of that place. Yeah. There are two reasons that I wanted to cover this one especially. One is that it is uh, fossils from the Gray Fossil Site, which is the site where Will and I previously worked and worked for quite some time. Yep. And the second reason is it is it has two authors. The first is Steve Jasinski, who is a friend and colleague and former roommate of mine and perpetual arch nemesis (laughs) he is currently over at the university of pennsylvania the second author on this paper is me hey hey i know those guys i did some science uh yeah so this is a project that steve and i started working on when we were at tennessee uh doing our master's degree looking at snake fossils from the gray site so what we did here so the gray site is uh this it's an ancient sinkhole that became a pond And the pond gradually collected fossils of the animals that lived there. It was in a forest surrounded by grasslands in the late Miocene, early Pliocene. So we're looking about five million years ago. Mm -hmm. So the fauna of the gray fossil site is this weird mix of familiar things, like relatively modern style snakes, like pretty modern style things like tapirs, with extinct things like saber-toothed cats and gomphotheres, which are elephant relatives. And then things that are just completely out of left field, like the red panda. hmm And Chinese plants and the European badger and just super weird stuff. Well, we looked at snakes, and the cool part of this, you know, re- really it's... The majority of this paper is just, hey, look at the list of snakes that live here. And we looked at hundreds of snake vertebrae, and we compared them with living uh, modern snakes and other fossil snakes... And we identified things like, you know, rat snakes and gopher snakes and uh, racers or uh, coach whips, you know, extinct species that are relatives of the living members of those groups. The big thing, the big cool new thing is that we named a new species.
1: Yeah. So
0: there is a new species of snake at the Gray site. It's not the first one. Every other animal at the Gray site is a new species. because That it's, really is. It's such an unusual sight.
1: Everything's really well-preserved. There's a large yep. variety. And yeah, about half of the stuff that comes out of there, once the closer look yeah. is taken, it's like, it's really close to this one. It's not quite that one.
0: Yeah. And and part, the big reason for that is that this is one of the only fossil sites of its age in the entire eastern United States. hmm The closest comparative sites, there's one in Indiana, I believe, and there's a handful in Florida. And this is in East Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So that's it. You know, this is, this is a, a, our only window into this area at this time. It's the first glimpse into this part of that world. The new snake. Honestly, you know, I'd love to tell you that there's something super cool about it. Like, oh, I was eating crazy things. Eh, It just has weird vertebrae. Hey, I
1: read the, the title and this one has wings. It has wings. I was promised Uh, a little quetzalcoatl.
0: (laughs) We looked at these vertebrae. And, cause that's what you study when you study snakes. Like I said in the snakes episode, mm-hmm. that's pretty much always vertebrae. And snakes have all these projections sticking out of their vertebrae. This one had these broad, unusual side projections that were broad, like, li- you know, and I said they look like little wings. They
1: really did. I, I saw, saw the picture and they had little, like, even feathery looking pieces.
0: Yeah. So they had these little wing like projections. Uh, those are for muscle attachment. So, you know, back muscles, which were probably either, you know, they they could have been for movement. They could have been for Buffs. just strengthening the back. Yeah, it could be. The reason that it's new is because I don't know of other snakes that have something quite like that. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what it was for. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a weird feature that we're not sure, we're, you know, what was different about it. At least not yet. Right now, all we have is a handful of vertebrae. But I said we should find a way to call it like a winged serpent. So we did. (laughs) Its its name is Zelantophis. Ophis is from the Greek for snake. Uh, Zelant is a winged snake from Russian mythology. Uh, So we called it Zelantophis because we're dorks. Nice. (laughs) I love it. There was another name. There was another name that was way harder to pronounce. I don't remember what it was. I had a list uh, because I like naming things. But the species name, so Xelantovus is the genus, the species name is Schuberti, and that is named after our professor, uh, who was uh, one of the, on on our committee, Steve and I, for our our, uh, master's thesis, and Will's advisor. Yeah, I know that guy too. Blaine Schubert, who, Dr. Blaine Schubert, who is not only one of the professors at East Tennessee State University, but the director of the museum Mm -hmm. where the fossil site is. Uh, And he's done research on reptiles for a long
1: time. He studies on on badass animals. He specializes on alligators and bears.
0: Yeah, he's he (laughs) does he does pretty cool stuff. (laughs) He crawls into caves and pulls bears out. Yeah,
1: it's like two completely unrelated, but both equally (laughs) tough and badass.
0: So you know, we kind of it's it's a it's a unique way to honor your mentors in in biology where you, you name a species after them. So. We named a species after Blaine, cause he's a cool guy.
1: It's it's pretty awesome. It's it, it really is cool. And there's a, there's a lot of the grad students were doing papers identifying or describing the multitude of species, cause we have so many, especially of the yeah. small animals. Of just you know a whole. We know we have you know a a handful of rodents. Someone's got to go through and. <laughs> ID them all. And yep. snakes are no exception. I, in fact, that was one of the most exciting things I got to find while digging there was a series of vertebrae that were actually articulated, which was... Yeah, still together. Yeah, very cool. They were in a line. There's a couple. I found one by itself. And then the next hour, you know, few hours of that day was me digging with a sculptor's tool very slowly yeah. and tapping a vertebrae every time and going... <gasps> <laughs> and it it was it was fantastic to find it it was tedious because they are tiny and there's a lot of them but it was amazing once they came out so it's very cool stuff yeah To so just to describe our
0: zealantophus a little bit this was a small snake these vertebrae are like two millimeters across mm-hmm. the snake itself was probably maybe a foot long you know if if not a little bit more yeah. all our snakes that we were looking at are colubrids So it's related to things like rat snakes and king snakes, almost certainly Mm non-venomous. Little tiny snake, probably not a water snake, you know, probably doing things like small snakes today, you know, crawling around in the litter and eating tiny bugs and tadpoles and things like that. Uh, Yeah, so yeah, pretty much just a regular backyard style snake, Mm -hmm. but one that we don't have anymore. Whatever that feature was did not continue to today, at least not in any snake we've seen. And we're sh- we're pretty
1: sure it didn't fly, right?
0: Well, I, as a scientist, <laughs> I have no evidence one way or the other. I will have to await more <laughs> fossil evidence. We'll have to see. I only have a handful of vertebrae. We can all dream. We'll have to, when, when we find a full skeleton.
1: All right. Well, that is our news, folks. Thanks for turning in. Good night, America. No, we have a whole rest <laughs> of the Join us episode. next
0: time. Join us at six for the news at four.
1: Ba-dum-bum-ba-dum-bum. Ba-dum. All right, so our episode today is about one of the most important evolutionary events in life's history. One of the most, I don't want to say misunderstood, but has some of the biggest questions revolving around it. Yeah. Just a very peculiar and exciting subject. So this is the Cambrian Explosion. Kaboom. Which many people have probably heard of. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is an event happening as the name suggests at the beginning of the cambrian this was a age ranging from about 542 million years to 485 million years yeah right after a period known as the ediacaran and starts the paleozoic and yes. so this was a, a big major change
0: time so we we should we should preface just to yes. orient our listeners in the geologic time scale Think of every event that you've heard oh, of yes. with extinct animals. This was before that.
1: Yes, absolutely. This you're... <laughs> this is
0: before trilobites, before dinosaurs, mm-hmm. before like, this is the beginning of the main studied portion of Earth yeah, history.
1: What what we recognize as the modern groups of animals. So phylums being the the upper classification for different different groups of organisms, but This case, animals, every modern recognizable phylum just about appeared in the Cambrian, specifically during this explosion, which took about 20 million years at the beginning. Yeah. Which sounds like a bunch. That's really short evolutionarily. Yeah. (laughs) Especially considering that every, as a number of sources I found quoted it, every recognizable body plan, like of the main. Body plans, that's what phylums are divided by, showed up in this time. And when we were saying that this is before, there were some that, by looking at this, thought that they may have been looking at the origin of life. That this is when life went boop and came to be. Because before this, we don't have much. Indeed, very early on, the reason
0: that this event became famous is because, you know, when you were in the 1800s or so, Darwin's time, looking at this, it looked like it was the all-of-a-sudden appearance mm-hmm. of the first life on Earth at the bottom of the geologic record. Yeah. Now, we have studied it, so now we know that it is not that sudden, not the first appearance of life, and not anywhere near the bottom of the geologic record. No. <laughs> Though it still has that reputation that it's like, boom, all life showed up.
1: This And this is when all recognizable life first shows up in the fossil recognizable
0: record. macroscopic life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we have bacteria for 3 billion
1: years before this. Yeah, and once again, I mean, that's they don't they don't even got digits, so <laughs> We'll go into more details on all of that as we go on, but the Cambrian explosion is this famous event when a vast diversity of life, being many different species, and one paper I looked at wanted to Especially signify the difference between diversity and disparity, because not only did we see a whole bunch of different species, tons of different body designs within the groups, showed up seemingly out of nowhere. At a glance, they really just seemed to pop into the fossil record. We're not sure how that diversity was sparked. We're not sure where the diversity originated from, and or why. And Mm -hmm. It has been a still question mystery today as to the exact causes, but we now know a little bit more about what was going on since we have found more.
0: Yeah, this is one of those cases, much like when we talked about the KPG extinction, Mm -hmm. it's one of those cases where there's mystery and there's open questions and we don't know a lot of things, but it's it's an event that gets exaggerated in that regard a lot, where you'll hear it talked about where it's like, the cambrian explosion nobody knows why or or how or this and in reality we have a ton of great information mm-hmm. not quite enough to answer those questions yet yes we have a bunch of really cool options and a bunch of good evidence but yeah we still don't have a 100% complete picture
1: and it's it's a, a amazing event because it really does color the rest of ev- life's evolution from that point on is the these are the origins or seemingly the origins of everything we recognize as animals today. Yeah, modern or modern animals and modern
0: ecosystems. Mm-hmm.
1: So to we'll go into the proposed causes and the kind of historical process of discovering this event, uh, but quickly just to kind of give you a setting to think about of what exactly was going on and what, you know, we've... Found this was happening early, early on. Before this point, there's not a lot of fossils before mm-hmm. the Cambrian. That's really the big thing: is that we have since you know those early days found fossils, but beforehand we didn't have a lot, and almost all of it was single cellular. Yeah, and
0: even still today, almost all of it mm-hmm. is Mike. You know, life shows up around you know somewhere around four billion years ago. Yep.
1: And stays
0: microscopic almost up until this point.
1: Yeah. So one of these earlier microorganisms you find, one of the things they leave behind are things known as stromatolites, which are yeah. these pillar-like structures that were built by colonial microorganisms. Yeah. And that's that's some of the earliest life we find. One of the things we know is that there were these microbial mats along the seafloor that yeah. kind of served as the basis of the ecosystem we're being grazed on. For a long, long time, that was the ecosystem. is microbes, these microbial mats, and some of them, you know, colonial organisms, but that was really it. And then we start seeing some new stuff. The Ediacaran is the time right before the Cambrian, and we start to see first signs of complex life in the forms of trails. Mm-hmm. And this being a sign of most likely they compare it to earthworm type animals so yeah potentially multicellular organisms but we don't have those organisms just the you know worm prints they left behind <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: in addition to the prints in the ediacaran we do have a bunch of not the worm thingies but we there's a bunch of weird ediacaran
1: critters exactly
0: that do not seem to be like modern-day animals. <laughs>
1: and that's that's what, if any of you have ever heard, it's the Ediacaran biota is what those yeah. fall within. And, yeah, these were some weird animals. Definitely multicellular because some of them get up to two meters long. Like, some oh, yeah. of them are big. But we're not even sure that some of them are animals. <laughs> <laughs> some of them definitely fit the,
0: the body plans or, like, the early versions mm-hmm. of some of those plans. So, but there are a bunch that are like, I don't know, this, this might not even be an, a proper animal. Exactly. So
1: these were some very weird animals, and they become very important later on when we talk about some of the causes and issues with answers to the Cameron explosion. Mm-hmm. But that's as much as we're going to say on now. I want to make a quick shout-out, because we had a viewer request for an episode about the Ediacaran
0: yes. biota
1: uh, by, uh, Samuel sent us an email asking for an episode on that while I was working on this episode. So <laughs> excellent timing <laughs> and we will get to that episode, but not this day. Yes. That is not this day.
0: <laughs> we got to stop hanging out. You beat me to that, that
1: line by about half a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's, this podcast is only going to make it worse. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We're just the same person. <laughs> and then everything exploded. And so, at the end of that, we see a couple of other signs. We see some like vertical burrows starting to show up, mm-hmm. and you know things burrowing down and even creating some small pillars out from the substrate. And you get first few signs of potential life forms that we we see today. Uh, and it's the group that most of you know most animals fall into, including ourselves are the bilatrians. Yeah, you see the potentially the ancestors of these at the very end sli- of the Ediacaran and beginning of the Cambrian, and then things go crazy. Yes, we get a, the explosion at the starting of the Cambrian, and as I said, all recognizable modern f- animal phyla show up in the fossil record during those twenty million years, mm-hmm. which is insane. This isn't like you know when we were talking about the mammals after the dinosaurs, where they diversify and radiate, because that's one group. Yeah. This is multiple groups showing up for the first time. Yeah. In the fossil record. The Ediacaran biota goes extinct. We stop finding them, and we start finding all these animals, and many of them recognizable. Earlier on, we start seeing lots of uh, what they call, what every single one calls small shelly fossils. Yep. Which I love the name. (laughs) Because they're just tiny shells. Because they're tiny shells. And we're talking like a couple microns. Just very tiny. Yeah. Some are shells, some are calcified pieces of animals. You know, mm-hmm. so maybe a mouth part, maybe a piece of a sectioned animal. But yeah. the important thing here is what really sets the camera apart is the first time we start seeing, phys- you know, solid fossilizable parts, calcified.
0: That's a really good point. All those Ediacaran fossils, um, again, that's another episode. Yeah, those are all impressions mm-hmm. and soft tissue
1: fossilization. In super exceptional fossil sites. Exactly. So the Cambrian Explosion is kind of this the revolution of calcified body parts. You know, yeah. lots of arthropod-like and other, you know, shelled animals that started leaving behind these easily or more readily fossilized parts. This is when trilobites start showing up and dominated for 300 million years, just about. <laughs> yep. I mean, so that, once again, another episode. But trilobites show up here. And and everything else starts showing up. And we're not sure where they came from. <laughs> we don't see any, you know, fossil, you know, trilobite-like animals before the Cambrian. They show up and are already trilobites. It's sort of like when we were talking about the flight episodes. Mm-hmm. Is They showed up and we don't know how they got the way they were or remotely who they came from. As As we said in that episode, the thing that tends to
0: happen is when a group gets started, they're, you know, it's one population. Mm -hmm. And then they diversify from there. So the earliest days, the earliest generations of any group, they're minor and they're not widespread and they're not really important. And so they're very unlikely to fossilize. And those are the the times where you start, where all that important evolution is happening, Mm -hmm. developing this new diversity. Yeah. Uh, And so we... You know, and, and there are some cases, many cases where we get, little, you know, we manage to get snippets of that. Mm-hmm. And there are bits along the, the, the progress of the Cambrian explosion where we see these stages of these ecosystems developing, but it's quick, mm-hmm. you know, geologically. So again, 10, 20 million years is quick. It's yeah. not a lot of time for the fossilization of these steps.
1: And that, that brings us, uh, well into the next section, which is the Cambrian explosion shaped a lot of the ways we now view fossil record, evolution, and the ecosystems that we see because this undid the ecosystem that had been and set into place many of the ones we recognize or the baseline that we recognize today.
0: Yeah. We should we should mention for the the listeners that when we say modern groups of animals, Mm -hmm. we're meaning the The first arthropods, Mm -hmm. the first worms, uh, the earliest signs of chordates, which Mm -hmm. is our own group, the ancestors of vertebrates, you know, mollusks and brachiopods and pretty much all the groups that make up ecosystems today. But more important than that, we also see the beginnings of niches being filled. Mm -hmm. The first evidences of burrowers that burrow under the sediment. The first evidence of predators. Yeah. Like actual pred animals that are eating other animals. Yeah, they're very actively hunting. The structure of ecosystems was formulated during the first 10-20 million years of the Cambrian. Yeah. Even habitat structure, like the the burrowing, changed the the structure
1: of the sediment. Exactly. They called it the uh, the Cambrian substrate revolution.
0: Yeah, which which sets. That's the foundation, literally, Mm -hmm. on which ecosystems are formed today. Mm -hmm. It wiped out those old microbial mat-dominated ecosystems. Now, today they only persist in some areas. And animals took over all these brand new niches, which is really cool, including a bunch of animals that don't necessarily fit any of the groups we see today.
1: Yep. (laughs) And that's the thing, is there was lots of animals that we're not sure where they go. Because they're weird.
0: Yeah, and they might not go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like They might indeed be phyla that started out and didn't make it yep. past the Cambrian.
1: And so we, the fossil record for the Cambrian is very vast, uh, especially due to sites like the Burgess Shale, which yeah. many people have probably heard of. It's a very famous one. And this is a site where very ideal fossilization can have not only preserved many, many animals, but soft tissue of the animals have been preserved in outlines and in yeah. impressions, meaning that we have some soft body animals preserved there that you would not find with any of the calcified fossils. Yes, which has increased the amount we know even further. And there's been other. There are other Burgess shale type deposits around the world, uh, and there's they they even call the fossilization. Burgess Shale type preservation. It's named after yes. that their site because of that detail that it can get.
0: Yeah, the Burgess Shale is in British Columbia mm-hmm. in Canada. There's actually a handful of of, of these really awesome early Cambrian and Ediacaran sites in Canada.
1: Mm-hmm. There's one in there's another famous one in China, I can't remember the pronunciation of it.
0: Chungjiang, I have a yes. book that is essentially a field guide to the Chungjiang fauna. Yeah. And it's pictures of all oh. these earliest, like trilobite-type things, anomalocaris type things, which were the swimming shrimpy predator things with claw faces, and then stuff like wawaxia and Mm hallucinogenia that we just have no idea what the heck that is.
1: And (laughs) this this was a time where animals we recognized were showing up, animals we didn't recognize were showing up, and they all seemed to come out of nowhere. And... To quickly because it it's worth mentioning the history of the impression among the scientific community for the cambrian explosion is worth mentioning cuz it is interesting and important because it it's so, it's super weird and it was realized pretty early on that it was super weird. Mhm. So first cambrian animals ever found were trilobites. Yeah. The most famous of the cambrian animals by far. Uh, and this is like going back into the 1700s uh, 1698 I think is when it was cool. they were to be being described. And these animals were heavily used for dating rock layers and actually were used to date the layers of rocks that would become the Cambrian or become known as the Cambrian. Mm -hmm. So they were used mainly for, when they were first discovered, their heaviest use was actually in IDing those layers. But then it was pretty quickly realized that something weird was going on. Charles Walcott was the man who discovered and studied the Burgess Shale, and who first set out the trilobite-based biostratigraphy that id the Cambrian period. So he did a whole bunch, ID'd, wrote down the information, and described many of the animals. And then after that, uh, Harry Whittington came along, and he and his colleagues co- colleagues studied his works. And they were the mm-hmm. first ones that really kind of came to the conclusion that something weird happened here yeah we went from no fossils to lots of fossils so they were the first ones that really kind of pointed a finger saying this is there's a divide here Mm -hmm. where animals just kind of seem to show up yeah and this was the time at which people were starting to really scratch their heads as are we looking at the origin of life are we looking at something weird Mm -hmm. my favorite of those fingers being pointed at the issues is darwin actually mentioned it in the origin of species yeah toward the end as one of the greatest potential arguments against his theory yeah because as he put it if these animals which are already complex and diverse truly did just show up here they like an animal like this should have an ancestor it came from like there should be yes. a common ancestor <laughs> but there is no common ancestor and if that's the case that's a big hole yeah now his answer at the time was that our fossil record is incomplete Right, and yeah, we'll they'll find it eventually. Exactly, there must be these fossils. We just have not found it yet. He even posited a, a potential answer. He says, "I do not have a, you know, a, a good enough answer, but if I had to give one, it would be that the areas that we find these blank stratigraphy, you know, strata of rock beneath the Cambrian that have seemingly no fossils, were in areas where fossilization was just not able to happen." Yeah. And that we have these giant blocks of time where fossils just weren't being able to be created. Yeah. He had a he had an explanation having to do with the uh uh large islands or expanses and I'd have to double check exactly what he said, but Oh uh, yeah, I don't
0: remember exactly.
1: It was it, it was interesting. Even Darwin was recognizing something weird here and it's an issue.
0: <laughs> it's funny because he said, you know, like you said he says I don't know. I don't know what's going on. There should be a progression mm-hmm. that shows that the origin and, and, and gradual evolution here. We don't see it. I'm sure it's out there. We just haven't found it yet because the record is bad. Yeah. And you can imagine people of the time being like, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Like, that is, that is the, like, the least convincing argument. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. We'll it was just, I, I, I'm sure we'll find it. The, the cool thing, of course, is that yeah, we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> we, we absolutely have found, like I said, that uh, there is there's life beforehand, and we do have at least a little bit of the layers of progression mm-hmm. throughout this explosion. Uh, so, if he were here today,
1: he we, we I, I used right. to wonder that. This is a quick aside for everyone, <laughs> but one of the things that baffled Darwin the most was how traits were passed down, because they had not discovered genetics yet, yeah. and he continued to try to rewrite his theory over and over to adjust for it and I I can only imagine how maddening that must have been and if only we could but show it's like no no you were yeah. on the right course we discovered these things inside our bodies he was it's if you haven't read the origin of
0: species go read it yes it's astonishing how close he was it's really amazing he was he had the idea of genetics like he was right mm-hmm. there hadn't been discovered yet which is, That's a whole other episode.
1: Yeah. So, last note on the history, I uh, wanted to mention Preston Cloud, who was the one of the. He he was kind of a, a jack of all trades, from the sounds of it. He had know. a giant sword. Yeah. Right. And crazy hair. Yeah. It was really. Uh. He did a lot. He was he, geology, paleontology, monster slaying. You yeah. know, save the earth from an asteroid. It was crazy. He could summon a big dragon. Um. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've never the played first these video games. game
0: reference on our, on our podcast. That's, I have also never played those
1: games. <laughs> <never played> <laughs> I know all this from Advent Children. <sighs> um, I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> he was the one who really put the Cameron Explosion in the viewpoint that we kind of have it today. Uh, to almost the point of naming it the Cameron Explosion. He has one quote that I'll have to find and put in the blog post that is so close to calling it <laughs> Explosion, but not quite... But that's really the man that framed it all in the way that it's typically framed today. But since all of that, we have found a lot of the information mm-hmm. and now don't have the answers, but have more potential answers and at least know better which questions to ask.
0: Yeah, there's a it's, it's like I said, one of those situations where we have too many good options. Yeah. We haven't found the evidence yet that tells us which one is the right one.
1: One paper I found really makes that point. It was written by uh, Charles R. R. Marshall. And Mm -hmm. his whole thing was the saying that we have all these different options typically coming from different backgrounds of science. And Mm -hmm. it very well could be a combination of them or a interaction of them and trying to figure out. And I I believe he was even doing it mathematically, trying to figure out which were. It started getting into stuff that I don't know how to dabble with. (laughs) <laughs>
0: One's basically ma- trying to say what what caused this mm-hmm. sudden diversification, this massive event.
1: And there are typically three main factors that people look to mm-hmm. as causes, many causes within each factor or potential causes. but they're either right. looking at a the abiotic environment, meaning the actual physical environment, right
0: Something changed mm-hmm. in the,
1: the habitat, exactly genetic or developmental capacity, meaning that something about the DNA of life was able Mm. to give rise to this explosion, some change in the, you know, base genetics. In in evolution itself. Mm -hmm. Or the ecological, something changed in the interactions of the animals and the life. And each of them have potential answers with potential problems uh, as to those answers, and I'll, I'll go through these semi-quick because once again, each of these could vary. you know <laughs> we could go through each potential one in an episode itself because I'm sure there are a dozen papers on each one. Oh yeah. With how studied this is, the environmental effects typically fall either in an increase of oxygen mm-hmm. or snowball Earth, which I'll explain in a second, or something. The last two are a bit weird: the carbon isotope mass extinction or True Polar Wander, are the four that I found. Hmm. More oxygen is pretty straightforward. More oxygen, more metabolism, more life. Bigger bodies, more diversity. It's a common thing nice that we have seen in the fossil record before. When we had large arthropods on land, there was higher oxygen. They could yep. breathe more easily since they don't have, you know, powered breathing, so they could survive as being bigger
0: and there is some evidence for changes in oxygen level yes. around this time leading into the cambrian.
1: Now, the biggest issue that many people point out is we don't know what the oxygen requirements for those first animals would have been. Yeah. Nor do we have a precise values for what it was before the cambrian to know yeah. if those levels were already at that. So, not 100%, but it points to it the one big thing that it points to going back to the ediacarans is that some of them were already big. So yeah. big life was already possible. Yeah, it was happening. It started. Uh, Snowball Earth is another big one, which this is the idea that Earth for a time was completely covered by glaciers, basically. Yeah, glaciation to the tropics. Mm-hmm. And this would have... When you get a... The, the Snowball Earth idea is has kind of a double effect of because it's becoming more white, it reflects more sunlight... As it reflects more sunlight, it gets colder, and more things freeze. becomes more mm-hmm. white, reflects more sunlight. It's like the opposite of the greenhouse effect. Yeah, the it's the albedo effect. Mm-hmm. The idea here is that at the end of Snowball Earth, it would have opened up massive amounts of new habitat for yeah. that diversification. Issue with this answer being that evidence shows the last major global glaciation was... 635 million years ago, which would put it 90 million years before the Cambrian.
0: Yeah, so it took, if that's the reason, it took a little bit, of, there's mm-hmm. a lag time before it, it took off.
1: Absolutely. And there now there is, people do usually connect the Ediacaran uh, biota with a glaciation event, the uh, Gaskiers. Hmm. I'm, I'm assuming it's German. But the Gaskiers glaciation, the end of it coincides pretty well with the beginnings of the Ediacaran biota. Yeah. So all this life cooped up by the glaciation just waiting to diversify yeah. when it left. And so that's that's the idea, but on a global scale. Once right. again, it's not. Yeah. it hasn't been a perfect answer, but it's a potential one. The last two are, are very interesting. The carbon isotope mass extinction is an interesting one because one thing we do see in the Cambrian is a large negative carbon isotope anomaly. So there's suddenly <laughs> this large change in the amount of negative carbon isotopes in the environment. We're not sure what causes it. We're not sure what, you know, why it's happened, but it is very likely that it would have caused some major environmental disturbance. You know, just any large influx of something is going to affect things.
0: Interesting. So evidence of a disturbance, we just don't know what the disturbance was. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Now, if this, if there is a large environmental disturbance to cause something like this, typically that coincides with causing a mass extinction, mm-hmm. and so this is right at the beginning of the Cambrian. And the idea here is, if whatever this was caused a mass extinction, we often see a boon in diversity after Afterwards. mass extinctions. Interesting. So that's and this could have even been what killed off the Ediacaran biota. Interesting. Now, this doesn't answer, why did new animals show up? Right, right. Maybe a piece of the picture, maybe not the whole thing. But it is there. And then one potential answer for that and for the rest is the true polar wander, which is that rapid movement of the continents basically released huge amounts of methane, as the paper described them, quote-unquote, burps. (laughs) 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 Trying to be as scientific here as I can. Yeah, absolutely. Which could have increased temperatures, you know, methane being greenhouse gas, mm-hmm. increase the temperatures, raising temperatures, meaning it more apt for a diversity of life, and could put that shifting could have been what triggered the carbon isotope anomaly.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like looking at habitat change, it sounds like there's a bunch of evidence for a bunch of different changes that were going on around this time. Exactly
1: that all could have been factors. But how they're interacting with each other, how they're interacting with life, which of them are actually having an effect and which aren't, is really hard to tease out. Sounds, once again, sounding a lot like what we talked about at the end of the Mm -hmm. (laughs) KPG Extinction episode. Exactly. These massive events are often hard when there's so much going on. It's sort of like if a guy gets shot... By 50 different people all at once. Okay, but whose <laughs> bullet actually killed Who him? did
0: it? Well, it's interesting because you remember at the end of that episode 5, we talked about how one of the reasons it's difficult is you have a bunch of different events happening, but the resolution in the geologic record
1: mm-hmm. isn't
0: always good enough to tease them out if they happened within, you know, 100,000 years of each yeah. other. In this case, you know, the farther back
1: you go in time, the hard, the lower resolution you have. Absolutely, and the dates we've been giving for this time are only very recent. That was one of the big reasons there was as much confusion and debate earlier on, is dating that far back was nigh unimpossible to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <it's>, modern <laughs> techniques are allowing us to do it mm-hmm.
0: at the fine scale that we need. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. the
1: the next two are a bit more straightforward and kind of grouped together more specifically. The developmental mm-hmm. genetic one is an interesting one because the mm-hmm. the base idea is that the genetics of life, whichever life it was that gave ri- rise to all of this, was hit a level or hit a milestone that then allowed for natural selection to put pressures on it in a whole new way. Uh, like the rise of modern style of mm-hmm. developmental genes. And specifically, the developmental genes... Off, also known as the Hox genes, mm-hmm. which are bundles of genetic code that will code for typically a body plan, a body part, you know, for instance, an arm. Yes. Right. Where your legs and your head and everything go. Exactly. And the reason they're so interesting and, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to put this in the blog post, but if not, absolutely look it up. Fruit flies are studied with these heavily. Mm-hmm. And the Hox genes in a fruit fly, many are very similar to, if not identical to, those in a mouse. Yeah. And thus, those in us. Yes. And if you actually switch them between, if you take the build a joint, you know, build a limb Hox gene from a fly and put it into a mouse, the mouse develops fine.
0: Yeah. They did that with mice and fish, too.
1: Mm-hmm. That, that some fish have those same limb development Hox genes. And so it's this bundle that's not saying make a fly leg, it's saying make a leg. And then the fact that yeah. so many distantly related animals have it means it's a very basal trait. It was something from one of our the common ancestor between a fly and a mouse. Yeah. Which is going way back. And if it is that case, then that means it would have been the common ancestor of all the animals in the Cambrian Explosion. Mm-hmm. So, the idea is that these Hox genes came into being, and like Dave was saying, just were able to fast-track evolution. Suddenly you had this new set of tools that natural selection could play with, and Animals were evolving in new ways because they were now all using the same code, the same body plan instructions.
0: It's it's kind of like when limbs evolved, mm-hmm. right? Limbs evolved in vertebrates, and you start seeing you know animals using their limbs for swimming, for climbing, for running. For you, you've got these tools that you can now use in a bunch of different ways, and natural selection's going to go crazy with
1: it. the The best modern day example I can use, I can think of, is it's like when a new gadget or technology comes out like VR, and suddenly everyone's like, we can make video games out of it, we can put movie trailers into it, we can make movies into it, we can use it for going on vacation, and now everyone's coming up with different ways to use it because it's a new tool that didn't exist before.
0: When you said modern technology the first idea that came to my mind was Minecraft.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) What a diversification of Minecraft. Yes. Uh, Legos. Hox genes are the Legos of genetics. Indeed. So this idea, or just the fact that genetics of the animals reached a level of complexity. Mm-hmm. And so it's like when you mentioned with birds that birds didn't take off until they had developed all the traits of a bird. And then they right, right the idea that genetics were fairly simple, fairly simple, and then got just complex enough to now really go crazy. Yeah. They were complex enough to have all the traits they needed to diversify. Interesting. It's interesting stuff. I don't know how we would ID those, but... No, I'm sure somebody does. Mm-hmm. So the the next area is the ecological, which is the interactions between the animals. And this is something that you mentioned with predation being one of the big ones. Yeah. A lot the of scientists... first predators. Exactly. A lot of scientists point to that this is when we start seeing the first... Signs of predation and definite predatory animals. And the signs for predation actually go even before the Cambrian when we start seeing those burrows. A lot of people point to that as, why would you be needing to burrow unless you're hiding from something? Ooh, interesting.
0: mm, And mm, it's it's mm, not 100%. I don't know know how much
1: I like that one. It's not 100%. (laughs) You can get nutrients down there, but... It definitely gave them the first evidence that maybe things were hiding, especially since some of those burrows had like chimney columns that they built, you know, like a yeah. tube for, like a snorkel. Yes. You know, like two worms coming up. And so they had, cool. they were seeing first evidences of maybe potential predator prey dynamic, but in the Cambrian, absolutely. They saw that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things they posed as to why we might've seen this first predator showing up is that this is also when we see the evolution of eyes. I, I just want to stop mm-hmm.
0: right there for a second and repeat that sentence. This is when eyes evolved. This is when we get eyes. <laughs> we were just talking about reaching a new tool mm-hmm. that you can use. Can you imagine how that changed ecosystem dynamics that animals could see?
1: It's I've, <laughs> like, I've heard this from every friend I what? have that wears glasses, but it makes me think of when they all describe seeing the leaves, individual leaves on the trees for the first time <laughs> after having gone through their childhood without glasses. And not yeah, you know, it's the, but it's that idea of you can now see what you're eating, you yeah, can now or see what's trying to eat you, see where you're going and see what's eating you, and so that's the idea is that we got now, there were definitely things predating on each other, microbes predate on each other all the time, mm-hmm. but now you have animals that can see what they're eating and aim for it. Yeah, you got hunt, mm-hmm. you got hunting, you got chases, and this is that uh, classic I think trilobites. Arms race. Uh, I think trilobites
0: were the first ones to develop complex eyes. Mm -hmm. I believe so. Um, I I spoke over what you just said, and I I did not mean to. You said arms race, which is a very important term that you've got. Right, because you also have defensive structures, Mm -hmm. right? Shells and hard body parts. And the first predators are like, oh, great, let's eat these things. Mm -hmm. And then the evolution of defense is going to show up. And then the better predators, more diverse predators and more diverse prey... Animals that burrow into the sand to hide or to find nutrients in a safe place. Animals that can swim to get away. Mm-hmm. Animals that can swim to chase the swimming animals. Just all of this, you know, there's, there's a million niches. Yeah. It's like if you colonize a new planet, you can land anywhere. You can go live anywhere you want. There is no restriction on what you can do. So once you get this diversity, it's, there's five million Predatory niches to fill now. Yeah, it's the it's go fill them.
1: Domino effective is just it keeps going and building.
0: Yeah, just keep fi- you know like with the first vertebrates on land. Mm-hmm. The world is you know there's go fill every possible ecological space you can you can think of. The world is your oyster, which you know would have the been the first ancestors times, first of all. Yeah, the game which
1: game. would have been the first time this phrase could have been used. Uh- the Ediacaran. <laughs> the Ediacaran creatures would not have any idea what yeah. you were talking about. The world is your microbial mat, uh, is what all of they, s- they <laughs> said. Yeah, that's that's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> they all said, blip, blip, blip. <laughs> so these these traits evolving may very well have been able just to spark the diversity in and of itself. They also point to just the mass extinction, once again, of the Ediacaran biota and the animals mm-hmm. there may have been enough so just, we have a whole lot of things going on, lots of stuff lining up. It's much like our, the the debate between the megafaunal extinction of uh, man, humans, or env- the environment, or eco the climate, which one is actually making the push is really hard to tease out. Right. One
0: other thing I wanted to point out here, um, I read an essay by Stephen Jay Gould mm-hmm. uh, some time ago. And he, this was in like the 70s, so I don't know how much this idea is still bantied about. Um, so this might be an outdated idea, but he and a bunch of colleagues had studied growth patterns, mm-hmm. and they compared, basically the, the analogy they used was bacteria in a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, a handful of bacterial cells in a Petri dish, and you chart their growth, right, one cell becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, and the numbers will slowly increase, but it's exponential. So you'll get a slow, gradual increase, Mm -hmm. and then faster and faster and faster and faster until suddenly it jumps, right? A spike in population growth. And then as they start to fill the dish, they can't grow very much anymore, so it slows down, slows down, and then kind of levels off. And your graph is what's called a sigmoid curve, kind Mm -hmm. of S-shaped, flat mostly, and then jumps up, and then goes back to being flat and they were suggesting that the diversity of life may ha- may follow a similar trajectory except that the difference here is niche space and eco you know morphology op- options and suggesting that if that's the case if the evolution of the diversity of life follows the same sort of pattern of gradually growing and then expanding rapidly until you fill every possible uh, a place that you can, and then slowing back down again, mm-hmm. the Cambrian Explosion might just be the middle part. Yeah. Then they, their argument was basically saying, maybe this isn't special. Maybe mm-hmm. this is just what the diversity, like, that, what the trajectory is that you you jump up in your diversity until you've basically occupied all the niches you can, and you level back out. Uh, and it it may be the one. T- it may be that we've been on that level since then, mm-hmm. and we were on the level before then. Now again, this was an essay written in the '70s, and I haven't seen much written about this mm-hmm. since. So I do not know if that is still
1: uh, a, a widespread thought. I'm I, not sure. It definitely, it definitely uh, it is a interesting one, and it fits with the fact that when they see that diversity jump up, it does seem to level off for the rest. Of, like we don't see nearly the same amount of diversification in the rest of the cambrian. Right. That first 20 million is where it is. The rest of the cambrian functions pretty normally from what we expect from ecosystems yeah. and environments. So and
0: indeed most of those niches in marine environments have pretty much stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Like marine or, the, the the organisms are different, but the ecological structure is pretty much the same as it was That's that the the, the kind that originated
1: in this event. Yeah, which the biggest question that raises for me is that the: if that is true, then the only reason, only way we can test it is by finding other planets with life and seeing if they also had. You know. Yes, <laughs> that's the. we <laughs> need is another planet. I need mean, another Earth. We need to, a, to see what happens. A
0: interstellar case studies. <laughs> um, we should. I, I do want to make the the real quick point. Yeah. That. When we talk about this diversity and this this eruption, uh, uh, and this is a topic, again, for another episode, but we're talking about you know, all these different phyla evolved, and you have arthropods, you have echinoderms, and you had chordates, and you had annelid worms, and you had bivalves or whatever. When it first happened, these were not distinct phyla. Mm-hmm. These would have been closely related groups, you know, different species, different families, mm-hmm. that evolved very differently. And the ones that were successful would go on to give rise to huge amounts of life throughout the rest of history. Yes. You know, the first chordate, the first animal with a notochord in its back that evolved during this event, during the Cambrian, would have probably looked a lot like, you know, early eurochordates and early echinoderm Mm -hmm. and other close relatives. But in the 500 million years that have followed... That population's descendants have, ex- you know, continued to diversify instinct yeah all the vertebrate animals we have today. So they're only phyla because we're looking at them from now. Yes, <laughs> they they weren't phyla to begin with. They were all you know they were a, a family mm-hmm. that diversified really quick. Yes,
1: exactly. And that's uh, that's always an issue with grouping is trying to tease out those those parts where really you're looking at the base of a branch, you know, a branching event. Yeah. This is a really big branching event.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is as... Uh, it's <laughs> like we said, when birds first evolved, they diversified really mm-hmm. quick. When the dinosaur... The reign of the dinosaurs ended, mammals diversified really quick. Mm-hmm. This is that when that
1: happened with animals. <laughs> with everything. All of them. <laughs> yep. So there there are two really cool things to to say here at the end before we end the episode just little side notes the why it's important and why it's weird we've talked a good bit about why it's weird the why it's important is more so than just the fact that it gave rise to everything we recognize now but it also reshaped the way we look at evolution and the fossil record and Hmm. particularly in one case this is what gave rise to or sparked the idea of punctuated equilibrium. Ah, also Stephen Jay Gould. Mm-hmm. This event... So punctuated Im- equilibrium is an idea in evolution that it does not always happen slowly. So the Darwinian school of thought, when he first put his ideas to paper, was that evolution is a very slow, gradual, fairly regular process that, you know, mutations... you didn't know at the time, but mutations build up at the normal rate and things progress slowly and grudgingly building up (laughs) enough changes to become something different. Punctuated equilibrium is saying, okay, yes but then there are these short moments of surprisingly explosively fast periods of evolution where things line up right and you have a sudden diversity diversity of birds or Mm -hmm. things open up and you have a whole bunch of Terrestrial animals that suddenly diversify and that there are these moments where evolution speeds up suddenly. Yeah. And you, you can see that even
0: not, e- not with just with big groups of animals, mm-hmm. but with traits. Yes. Right? If you're a species and you have a, a a certain trait that works, right? If you're an elephant and the world is nice and warm, everything's fine. When the world gets cold, right? If the climate drops quickly, or rises quickly, you're going to be under pretty intense selection mm-hmm. to adapt a new trait. So the trait of ha- being, you know, woolier, if you're not woolly and it gets, you know, and the, and the environment changes quickly, that pretty quickly is going to weed out everybody without the right trait. Exactly. And so that's
1: going to be a rapid period of evolutionary change. Exactly. And so this is, this is a, you know, t- a, a, view on evolution that was originally sparked because of the Cambrian explosion, or at least had its origins. I don't know whether the term was used back then, but it had its origins Mm there of saying, hey, maybe this was just really, really fast evolution? Things didn't just appear here, but they just evolved so quickly, we don't have the the full record of it. It looks like they popped in. Yeah. It was faster for us to see in geological time. Yeah,
0: and and these days we have Pretty, you know, there's still discussion over when the rates of evolution, but mm-hmm. there's pretty good evidence that, yeah, no, evolution is not consistent mm-hmm. in its speed. You have really slow, you know, periods where there's not a whole lot of change and periods where you get some really intense adaptation.
1: Exactly. Now, the last thing I want to end the episode on before we say our goodbyes and everything is the one, one of the big questions about the Cameron explosion that must be asked especially with you know certain bits of evidence is was there really an explosion was this actually an explosion or is it really is it just normal and this is just what we have Mm -hmm. the big part of that being what darwin suggested is preservation biased yes we have an incomplete fossil record we've known this since we've ever started finding fossils it is the main truth of fossil hunting and study yeah Not everything fossilizes, not even most things fossilize, most things don't. And even those things that do, much of it doesn't even survive to be found. Mm -hmm. So it is very possible that the ancestors to all these animals had been developing and evolving for a very long gradual time, and we just don't have those fossils. And that's supported by the fact that a lot of the animals that show up, we don't just find... You know, the first animals, and it's like, oh, look, this is, this is starting to show those traits. Like, when we find the first trilobites, they are trilobites mm-hmm. fully formed, developed, you know, all of the complexity that we think of a trilobite and diverse. They yeah. were a very diverse group. And when looking at the molecular clocks, which is a term we use when we try to average the rates of mutation buildup, which is an inexact practice because it's once again, debated as to how quickly those actually build up, mm-hmm. and they will vary under the punctuated equilibrium idea, but looking at the potential molecular clocks, place them well before the beginning for the origins of trilobites of the Cambrian. Right, so the genetic evidence gives us reason to think that there would have
0: been, the, the origin actually lies a little bit earlier yeah, than this.
1: that there should have been pre-Cambrian trilobites all over the place, that we're just not yeah. finding for some reason.
0: Which, of course, makes perfect sense. Anytime you have a diversity of organisms, yeah, you're missing the part
1: where they diversify. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is is exactly what Darwin first suggested, that we, especially because the animals we find in the Cambrian are, many of them, complex already, Mm -hmm. we're just missing the long, long period of time where they were becoming complex, and we just don't have those fossils. So there may not really be an explosion. We just may be coming in (laughs) mid-season and going, who's that? Who's this? What's going on? Because we didn't watch the first half of the show because we don't have those fossils. This is one of those suggestions that is, it's
0: definitely a valid point, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have, like I said, the earliest period of diversification is always difficult to find, especially if it's rapid. So, we're definitely missing pieces. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, this is the fact that there was a comparatively rapid diversification at this time that happened. Yes. But there's a lot of diversification and a lot of animals showing up. So, there's this question of was it an explosion? Was
1: it a slow explosion? You (laughs) hear a lot of people call it the Cambrian radiation instead of explosion. And that's one of the things that I like to make a point with that question here is it's not so much that we're saying it wasn't anything special. We just don't have the rest of it. Yeah. It very likely was something special, but focusing on that explosion aspect of the name can be misleading. Yeah. It can lead us down to, all right, how fast can things diversify? What is, and instead of saying how much might we be missing? How much, yeah. how far back would it needed to have started? Let's not assume the Cambrian is the deadline. Mm-hmm. You know, the cave is just a, a place and number we put on it. So,
0: yeah. Well, when it was first discovered way back in the day, it looked like it was all of a sudden, mm-hmm. whereas today we understand that, well, okay, still fast, but all of a sudden being like 10 to 20 million years. Yeah.
1: And we found out there was a lot of stuff crawling around beforehand. Now, yeah. we're not sure what those things, all of them were or what they were related to, but we don't know what those things might have been able to evolve into because we just don't yeah. have those potential transitional fossils. Yeah. One thing that's really important to mention, and and
0: this is one of the big things that come up comes up in discussions of the Cambrian Explosion and preservation bias. As we mentioned before, this was a time, you know, evolution of eyes, evolution of swimming and, mm-hmm. and large bodies and things like that. Large bodies is a comparative term. These yes. were tiny, tiny animals. This was also the time... Like we said, that shells evolved, mm-hmm. and skeletons evolved, and exoskeletons evolved, and those are things that fossilize well. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons we might not have the earlier ancestors right before the Cambrian Explosion, or at least we don't have more of those earlier ancestors, is because they were squishy. Yeah. And we only get s- squishy fossils from particularly good fossil sites, which we have a good number. I There's a bunch of... Burgess Shale-style mm-hmm. fossil sites, and there's a bunch of Ediacaran fossil sites, but there's not a ton. Yeah. So it might be that, that, that life evolved the ability to be
1: fossilized better. Exactly. There could have been an, a whole bunch of squishy trilobites crawling around. Yeah. Just little grubby trilobites. And then suddenly, one of them got a fossilized part, and then or a calcified part and then the rest of it calcified yeah. and boom then you suddenly have fossil trilobites and indeed if i
0: understand correctly don't quote me on this but i'm pretty sure that the earliest life stages of trilobites right an individual mm-hmm. trilobite as hatches and grows up we don't very well understand the earliest stage of trilobite growth mm-hmm because they were probably squishy as, yeah. as babies, as newborns.
1: Yeah, very much like many arthropods are.
0: Yeah, and so that it may be a similar scenario where it, we've got a bunch of the picture, mm-hmm. but beforehand, before this, you know, part of this rapid
1: diversification was the
0: evolution era of hard parts.
1: Yeah, and so it's one of those where this could very well still be a fast-paced, massive, and important stage of evolution, but it might be two or three times the length that it currently looks like. Yeah, it could have been more. St- there may they were almost certainly more stages, mm-hmm. and so it may have been going on a lot longer. It's not really an explosion, as a very quick swelling. <laughs> <laughs> a an eruption. That's you. That you should put ice on, if you want it to stop.
0: And it did. Yeah, it it stopped. Didn't put ice on it. Maybe taking ice off of it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. What, if they oh, put the ice hell, back oh there on, you go. That's what I was. Yeah. Uh. See doctors we solved it we solved it There we it. go that'll get rid of that pesky life you got there uh, <laughs> the doctor the said the to planet earth because <laughs> right now it's running a fever it sure is hey if i was if i was
0: covered in tiny little parasites <laughs> digging into my surface and cutting down all all my my important stuff i mean it's it's, it's going bald i'd run a fever too mhm all right <laughs> So there you go. This is this is another one of those episodes, and you said this before, and I'm always struck by it at the end. Like, boy,
1: what a whirlwind! Oh, there's so much. There's so, there's so much in this. It's studying this one was exhausting's not the right word, but it was humbling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like as soon as I just tipped my dipped my toe into it, so many things started coming in. You know the Cambrian that has been looked at from just about the point of view of every group that has been found in it. There's a trilobite point of view, there's an arthropod yep. point of view, there's a you know chinoderm there's all of them have been looked at to see how they add to the puzzle, and it's incredibly incredible how much info there is yeah this it it's it, when we did the KPG
0: extinction, my notes for that. It was something that I've actually been working on my on my own mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. So I came into it and I was like, oh, it's a good thing I read these 50
1: papers. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: just, There's so much. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's That was exactly my feeling going into this is like, I should have started this a couple of years ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> should have got a well, jump I, on this. you know,
0: it's it's one of those things where if people are really interested in it and you want to learn more about it, if you want to hear more about specific, you know, we could do an episode about the Burgess Shale specifically. You know, like Mm -hmm. Will said, we've already gotten a request for the Ediacaran. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, this is the overview. If you want to hear more details, let us us know. know.
1: We'll we'll zero in on it in a future episode. If it's a particularly awesome yet complex suggestion, it may be a little bit longer while we do all our research. (laughs) Yeah. Or we find someone who already did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really the
0: benefit of. Though, boy, the best thing about having Ethan on a couple episodes ago was that I didn't have to research primates. Yeah, not not even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I put well to to yeah it, reality. I, I study a little bit. I got a little bit of background knowledge, but I didn't. Well, that's why we started with snakes and crocs. Oh yeah, because we knew that stuff already.
1: Yeah. You know, it was just a brushing up to get us started. Mm, so absolutely. So that's the Cambrian. In its entirety, really. I don't know that you need any more details. And I think you all should go write papers about it now. That was that was a bit of an explosive overview of the Cambrian
0: radiation. Oh, oh. oh you see what I did? Indeed it was. You made it
1: funny. And thus, they started to ramble. <laughs> this is how it goes now for really until one of us has to fall asleep.
0: This is the, well, like we said, we started off slow, and mm. then there was a rapid mm-hmm. outpouring of information, and now we're leveling off again. Yeah. Uh, and and before you know it, it'll be the Mesozoic. See? The hypothesis stands. So, ladies and gentlemen out there in the world, thank you for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope that you will, follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, leave us reviews on iTunes, mm-hmm. Make send us email suggestions or questions or requests, uh, whatever else that I forgot to mention. There's a ton of ways to get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. We know that we love it because it's been happening more and more it's and fantastic. it fills us with happy thoughts. So yeah, keep in touch with us. Keep listening. We will ba- be back in a fortnight mm-hmm. for Double Digits, Excited. episode Excited. 10. Yeah, we will. we will have cake yeah. for episode 10. Absolutely. Um, you will have to bring your own. Bring yeah. your own cake, because we can't get it to you. So bring your own cake for episode ten. Going to have cake, and I'm going to eat it. Yes, and then I'm going to talk about whatever we talk about next time. All right, that's it. Yeah. Goodbye, Goodbye. We're, we're, we're <laughs> playing the music already. I'm sure the music's been playing. Cool we lost it. It's probably <laughs> yeah. It's already. We're already halfway through the outro. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.